Welcome to Mind and Soul Matters, I'm Farah Feeney. Through conversations with everyday people, Mind and Soul Matters aims to broaden our understanding of mental health and spirituality and to deepen our insights into the challenges and meaning of our lives. Our guest today is Dr. Dina Ashurian, who worked as a community pharmacist for 20 years prior to fully pursuing her passion and completing her PhD in the area of mental health. Dina is currently a senior lecturer at the University of Western Australia, and her main research interests include finding better ways to care for mental health consumers. I'm here with Dina to explore the role of medication in treating mental illness and to identify some of the obstacles faced by patients and find out how these obstacles can be overcome and perhaps spiritual principles may be underlying some of these solutions. Welcome, Dina. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you, Farah. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we start, I want to emphasize to our listeners that our conversation today is not a substitute for medical advice and the importance of consulting a mental health professional or a doctor as each person's circumstances are unique and we are here today talking in general terms. So with that in mind, Dina, what do you see as the role of medication in the treatment of mental illness? So Farah, let me start by saying mental health problems are very common, and I'll give you some statistics. According to the latest Australian National Survey of Mental Health and Wellbeing, almost half of Australians aged between 16 to 85 years will experience an episode of mental illness across their lifetime. So with that in mind, and, and how common it is, um, I'll say that mental illness is a diagnosable illness. Hmm. And as such, it requires a correct diagnosis and treatment by a health professional. It usually doesn't go away on its own. Um, and so the sooner you receive professional treatment, the better the odds of a full recovery. So back to your question, role of uh, medications in treatment. Mm -hmm. When a patient does in fact seek treatment, the first goal of therapy will be to reduce the symptoms. And oftentimes, um, first-line therapy will involve the use of mental health medications, uh, such as antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications. Although uh, medications um, are often necessary, they're only one aspect of the recovery journey. Um, and, and they are a very important aspect. And I've seen through my practice, it can actually be um, life-changing for the patient. An example that comes to my mind is when people might be grieving. So they present with very similar symptoms to depression, but working out, you know, is antidepressants the solution to someone that might be grieving? So there are these, what I feel are more gray areas uh, and the, you know, how do we work that out? Feeling sad, feeling um, angry. These are all feelings that are normal in our day-to-day -day life. Um, we've all experienced sadness or anxiety at different times in our lives. I guess when it becomes, when we say diagnosable, um, we're looking at certain criteria or the physicians, the clinicians are looking at certain criteria. And those are 
um, the severity. So um, we're looking at how, how long has this person been grieving? Grief is an, a natural process, it's a natural reaction to trauma uh, or the loss of someone in your life. Right. So if people are experiencing symptoms where it's severe, it's lasting a long time and it's interfering with their everyday functioning for a period of time, not one or two days, but an extended period of time. That's That's a good time to seek professional help and to talk to their uh, doctor or uh, if they're already linked in with a mental health professional. Yes, yes. And I guess the main, the very important part here is that if anyone is in doubt, it's always good to talk to a professional because then the professional can work out whether medication might be suitable or not. And I guess that brings me to my next question in terms of the obstacles people face uh, in when they are prescribed medication, the obstacles they face in terms of taking it or taking it as prescribed, known as medication adherence. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of the obstacles you've noticed in your research and in the work that you do? Oftentimes, a dilemma that faces uh, mental health patients and their clinicians is the use of medications that, on one hand, will relieve their symptoms, but on the other hand, um, will possibly result in undesirable effects or side effects. And sometimes these side effects can be intolerable. So So what would be some of those side effects that people may experience? Not to want to frighten any of our listeners, but just to kind of have an an idea of what some of the side effects might be. Sure. So the side effects can be weight gain, um, chronic sedation, uh, insomnia, lack of ability to concentrate and function in daily activities. Um, and some of these sound like the symptoms of the disease mm. itself, mm. but these could also be um, symptoms, um, side effects of the medications. And these can occur um, undesirable. We have desirable effects of medications, but there are sometimes undesirable effects. Um, and these could lead then to patients becoming non-adherent to their medications and discontinuing treatment, oftentimes without um, communicating uh, their non-adherence to their clinicians. And what happens is then often the disease will relapse and Mm. they are back at hospital or back at the clinician's office. So this sort of is like a vicious cycle Mm. of prescribed medications leading to side effects, followed by non-adherence, followed by disease relapse. Um, And sometimes this could have serious consequences. Mm. And um, yes, and a lot of patients will cite Um, side effects being the the main reason why they stop taking their medications. Right. And so what do you see as the solution to that? So really at the core of the problem is the means for effective communication between patients and their clinicians. And we know from research that patients generally do not self-report these negative effects of treatment. So often their clinicians underestimate um, how frequently they occur or the severity of these effects and subsequently the high possibility of non-adherence to these prescribed treatments. So it would therefore make sense to focus on addressing this lack of communication, which over and over has been identified as a barrier to recovery from the patient's perspectives. I know you've published papers and amongst your many projects, you work with stakeholders to promote this concept of shared decision making. To me, it sounds like that links in with that communication that you're speaking about. Yes. So 
There are a number of things that we can do to improve the communication with um, patients and clinicians. And the shared decision-making model works on a collaborative approach, but it's actually more than just collaboration. It's a um, conscious sort of semi-structured process that both the clinician and the patient can engage in. It involves uh, self-determination, empowerment, and partnership together. So it really looks at the, the concept that you have two experts. You have the clinician who's an expert in evidence-based treatments and, and diagnosis. Um, and you have the patient who's also an expert. They're an expert in their own personal experience, their goals, their values, and their preferences. And so for the two experts in the room to work collaboratively to determine um, the treatment choice. So this is a fairly, uh, uh, it's not a new model, it's not a new approach in healthcare, but it's a fairly newer emphasis in mental health, um, particularly when it comes to management of psychiatric medications. Mm. And that shared decision-making would help improve that communication? Yes, absolutely. So if we sort of look at a um, framework where this would work, um, obviously the clinician would have to explain to the patient um, about what shared decision-making means and um, then explaining to the patient about their condition. So what's happening, what's happening to their mind and why are they feeling the way they are and explaining to the patient what would happen if they don't do anything um, and, and also what sort of evidence-based treatments are available. So what are the options? And based on those options, what are the harms and benefits of those options? And ask the patient, how do they feel about those benefits and harms? And how do they um, align, how do the harms align with their, or the benefits align with their personal goals, with their values? There are certain side effects or harms that they could live with, the patient might be able to live with, and there might be some that are a deal breaker. And they're mm -hmm. like, you know, I, I can't absolutely have that. So having that conversation um, and then coming up to a treatment decision that they um, can both agree on. Right. So that suggests that the clinician is really on board with this shared decision making. Absolutely. They yes. have to be on board. They both have to be willing to participate As, in this process. Like there's so many obstacles with that that's coming to mind. For example, clinicians that don't have the time mm -hmm. to sit there and explain all of that. The patient that doesn't feel confident enough, especially if, you know, mm -hmm. self-esteem and confidence can really be shaken when you are diagnosed or going through a challenge like that. Talk us through that, the, the various obstacles that can come up and how do we move uh, past those obstacles? Mm, very good questions. <laughs> so um, there are actually a lot of misperceptions around shared decision making and one is um, time mm -hmm. and that it might take too long. Um, we know from studies of shared decision making interventions that it does not increase consultation time. Even if it did, um, it would arguably save time in the long run because if the person feels that they're engaged, if the patient feels they're engaged, it's much more likely that they will adhere to treatment and we know that this will achieve better mental health outcomes. So in the long run, you actually will save time if this process is engaged with. 
Very skilled clinicians can do this in a very short period of time. We know that as well. So um, it, it really shouldn't be a barrier. Uh, I think here, general practice consultations are about 15 minutes. You can have this conversation in 15 minutes and, and help, the process, help the patient feel like they're engaged in this process of decision making. Yes, the process can be daunting for someone who's... Um, I guess if it's the first time they're diagnosed with a mental illness, it can be daunting. They might feel like they've lost control of their life, their situation, um, and they might not have the confidence to speak up about what their treatment options are. But that's, I guess it's, it depends on how much they want to be involved. We know from our studies that um, mental health patients actually want to be more involved than general patients, general medical patients. We know from our studies that they want to have some involvement, but we'll have to, I guess, decide with the patient how much involvement do they want to have in this process. Um, they might say, you know what, I don't want to be involved at all about what medications are prescribed for me. And that's okay. The clinician can do that. But they might want to be involved in the psychosocial interventions. So asking them how much they want to be involved with is part of that process. And, and who makes that final decision is not that important as to the process that led to that final decision. Right. So it's a real process of consultation, working together for patients to have that trust in themselves that they are the experts of themselves. They're not the experts of medication. They don't need to go and Google things, but they are the experts of how, what works for them and what doesn't. And then to have that confidence to share that with their clinician, their doctor. And for the doctors then to have that compassion to listen and to really listen to communicate uh, with their patient Absolutely. And like I said earlier, aligning the treatment choices to the patient's goals and preferences. And these goals might change in, in one's life. So a young person might have a goal of um, wanting to make friends, wanting to be involved um, in social activities. They might want to have a goal of studying at university. So having to choose treatment choices that are aligned with those goals is very, very important. For example, a young person um, wants to uh, get a degree, complete a degree, chronic sedation is going to be a deal breaker for them. They're not going to be able to study or go to classes. So that might be something that they need to consult with their physician about and finding a medication that's not going to make them sleepy all the time. Yes, these, these mm. goals can change throughout one's life as well. Mm -hmm. So again, coming back to that clear communication from both sides, so they're on the same page. And to me, trust seems to be a big part of this, that the patient trusts the clinician to be able to confidently share how they feel, what their goals are, what side effects that they're experiencing. What's your thoughts on that? Actually, that's probably one of the most important requirements um, in this process mm -hmm. is a good therapeutic relationship between the clinician and the, and the patient. Um, and that trust, it really is probably the most important in, um, in any consultation and in any treatment decision making. There has to be that two-way trust. It's not just one way. So the patient has to trust the clinician and the clinician has to trust the patient that they will be honest with them about those preferences and goals and about their adherence to treatment. So it has to be a two-way trust between the two. 
And what would you recommend if someone doesn't feel that trust? Mm, Interesting. (laughs) I guess it's important that you have that. And um, sometimes people disengage with services because they don't have that trust. So perhaps finding a clinician that you trust is is another um, important step in this process. So if you have a... um, a general practitioner or a psychologist that you feel like you haven't been able to connect with, well, perhaps you need to find another one rather than completely disengaging with um, help. Mm, I love that. Not giving up, just keep going until you get the one that you do feel that connection and that trust with. Mm. Absolutely. And, And giving hope, that's something that a lot of mental health patients struggle with is hope. And I think one of the most important things that a clinician can do in this process or a health professional is to give hope that things will get better, whether it's through the use of medications or uh, psychological interventions, that things will get better, uh, that there is hope for um, getting out of this dark darkness. Mm-hmm. And you have brought in a lot of these spiritual principles into this. There's compassion from the clinician, confidence and trust from both sides, uh, hope, communication. Uh, these are all spiritual principles that we're bringing into something that doesn't seem very spiritual at all, such as taking medication. But it is about that uh, this, using the science of medication, what we have available to us, combining it with this, those spiritual principles and that way we we get the best outcome. Mm. And I'll, I'll add another one, and that's respect, respect for the voice of the patient. Mm. Um, and I've, for years, I've advocated for the voice of the patient. I've developed a communication tool to assist um, patients to speak their voice. They have to feel empowered so that they can have these conversations. As you said earlier, a lot of them lack in confidence and assertiveness and expressing what their needs are and what their preferences are. So having respect for their voice is important in this process as well. Before we finish up, Dina, was there anything else that you would suggest to people that might be going through this journey, going through a mental illness, and they're really struggling with their medication? Uh, What advice would you give to patients in that situation? I guess I would find out what it is that they're struggling with. As a pharmacist, I've seen the life-changing impact that medications have had on patients. So it's important to identify what are the barriers to them taking their medications. They need to have an honest discussion with their health professional, whether it's a doctor, a pharmacist, or a psychologist whom they trust. Find out exactly how the medication works. Patients have often said they, they are curious, they want to be educated around what their medication is, what their condition is. So find out exactly how the medication works, how long they have to be on the medication. You don't have to be on medication for a lifetime. And oftentimes people are scared that, oh, well, if I'm prescribed a medication, I have to be on it forever. Um, And that's absolutely a myth. Not all patients have to be on medications uh, for long term. And to really understand how they work, what are the harms and benefits, and educate themselves on their illness, and the medications they've been prescribed. I always say knowledge equals power. So the mm. more your your understanding of your condition and your medications, the more empowered you feel over your, your condition and your life and your experience. And if indeed you are struggling with side effects, there are simple things that can be done to alleviate these side effects. 
Um, for example, if you're feeling tired uh, and you have sedation as a result of the medications, a simple changing from morning to nighttime dose might solve that problem. Or changing the um, actual dose to a lower dose uh, might change, uh, might actually change that side effect for that person. So having the conversation and not being scared to have these conversations with the health professionals can often a simple, there might be a simple solution to it or um, changing the medications. Medications are just one aspect of this journey. And sometimes you just um, are prescribed medications to get you over um, an acute phase of the illness until you're ready to engage in talk therapy and, and cognitive behavior therapy to, to learn some strategies to manage your illness. So I think having the courage to, to speak to someone about your concerns rather than deciding to just stop taking your medications because you're worried about certain things, having that conversation is important. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Gina. I feel like we have given some practical strategies, some tools, some hope to patients out there that might be struggling with mental illness or uh, struggling with their medication. And also if there are any clinicians listening, hopefully if they haven't already engaged in this process to start to take some of this on board. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful chatting to you. Thank you, Farah. It's been great being here today. Thank you. I'd I'd like to also thank our listeners and our great team who work behind the scenes to bring mind and soul matters to you. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember to subscribe on your preferred podcast app and share with friends. For any comments or feedback, email mindandsoulmatters at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If today's episode has raised any concerns for you, please contact your local mental health service. And for our listeners in Australia, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. And remember again that what we share does not substitute for qualified counselling and it is important to link in with a mental health professional if you have concerns. Join me next time on Mind and Soul Matters.